Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, plus insight and analysis of the beautiful game. I'm Duncan Castles. I apologise for a longer than usual interval between episodes, uh, but we're going to try and make it up to you by bringing back one of the transfer window's most popular guest experts. Um, He is the football correspondent of the Sunday Times. He's an author of excellent books on the 2018 World Cup and Leicester City. And in my view, the UK's most accomplished all-round football journalist. The Eamon Bannon of the sports writing game, Jonathan Northcroft. <laughs> Welcome back to the transfer window, John. It was going so well until Eamon Bannon, but uh, I, I, I do like your sense of humour, Duncan. I think you meant to say Gordon Strachan were the words that you're trying to come out with. I, I wanted to give you a proper award. That's why I gave you the Eamon Bannon award rather than the, the wee ginger narc. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So, um, as usual, we're going to start with some news on the transfer window. Um, it is news about the most important thing that is happening in football at present, the most important thing that's happening on the planet at present. Um, it's a response, one of the many responses to the coronavirus epidemic. And what we can tell you in the transfer window is that our information is that at least two clubs from the English Championship are putting forward a proposal that the transfer window be opened immediately um, so that they can sell players as and when they need to in order to raise revenue, um, basically to keep their clubs afloat. Um, They do not want to go uh, public with their identities at present um, for obvious reasons because they'd be identifying that they they feel they they need to sell players, but they think it's um, it's a strategy that the championship as a whole will need to implement because the championship is a division which essentially runs at a massive loss. Um, I think there, uh, if you go through the, the, the latest accounts of the championship clubs, you'll find that only one of those a profit of over £10 million, and that club was Derby County, which, as we know, um, used a tactic of uh, the owner buying the club's ground uh, to prevent the club from making large losses and failing financial fair play. Um, if you also go through the books of the championship clubs, you'll see that more than half of those clubs have a wage-to-turnover ratio of over 100%, i.e. spending over 100% of the revenue on player contracts. Um, Some of those clubs are as high as 200% of revenue to player contracts, and only two of the 24 clubs on the last set of published accounts were at less than 70%, which is generally considered to be a reasonably safe level. 
what I'm told we're seeing from these championship club is the idea that they see this lasting a long time. Um, and if they are uh, unable to get revenue in from match day with that amount going out on of their balance sheet on players' wages, they won't they risk going out of business. So they think the pragmatic solution is to allow themselves to be able to sell players, but obviously to do that, they need transfer window regulations to be relaxed. Now, FIFA announced this week that it was discussing the possibility of um, changing transfer window setups in, in response to leagues being suspended uh, almost globally and not knowing when they'll restart. But um, it will require uh, authorization at a national level and also an international level for this to happen. Um, Johnny, what's your, your thoughts on, on that strategy which is being proposed uh, at one part of the English game as a way of um, mm. mitigating the financial damage that's going to be caused by this epidemic and suspension of, of um, professional football? Mm, well, well, I'm not, I'm not surprised that, that desperate measures are being uh, put forward or, or looked at because as you highlight, Duncan, the, the, there's, there's, there's a desperate situation financially um, for clubs in the football league, possibly um, some in the, in the championship are going to be at the sharp end. Some will be be lower down. But as as you sort of state, the the precarious um, financial equation that they try and pull off year on year, which is you know investing heavily um, to try and get into the promised land of the Premier League, um, taking a short term uh, big sort of burden of debt in order to do that. Um, that is. Uh, going to mean that any crisis can knock those clubs into oblivion, and and this looks like a, a an unprecedented crisis. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that looking clubs are clubs are looking at everything. I mean, my instinctive reaction when you talk about um, basically clubs being allowed to to sell players um, in order to to survive is who would buy them at the moment, um, who could buy them at the moment. Uh, with so much uncertainty, on what basis would you be buying them? You know, when would when would they envisage a, a, a new playing contract start? And I'm not sure. I'm also not sure it's a good look for for players right now to to be moving. So, which which players would 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 want to move in the short term? I mean, the the, the player registration aspect and the transfer aspect is um, something that's that's one of those sort of time bombs in this whole crisis because. Um, you know, we're looking at at the moment the focus is on league-wide and governing body-wide solutions being found, and we're all aware that there could be court cases if if you know, but from clubs or from whatever if, if they don't get their way. But below that, there's so many um, individual players that can be affected by this um, that uh, the whole player movement thing transfers is um, one of the kind of. Uh, I think one of the things that could could really um, cause an impasse in, in in finding a way forward as as the situation unravels. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously issues for integrity of competition because you're yeah. you, you, you're then taking away the reason we have transfer windows, which is yeah. to prevent players moving during the season. Um, I think your point about where they would move is is a very important one. I think it is inevitable that we are going to have a depressed transfer market. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're looking at months 
and we can talk later about how many months, but you're looking at months of, of no revenue from playing matches for um, every football team, every yeah. football club. You're looking at doubts over broadcast contracts. You're looking at potential legal issues if the leagues aren't finished, um, which is why I think you've seen all of the English authorities coming together yesterday to uh, say not only that, that the league will remain suspended until the end of April, but they, they, they intend to find a way to complete it as soon as possible because that, that will hopefully evade legal issues. Um, but there is going to be less money in the game, for sure. And I, I've talked to um, a couple of agents about this situation, trying to get, get an, a, an assessment on how they are approaching it. And one of the interesting discussions I had was they, they, they feel that what you will see from this is the rich and powerful clubs getting stronger mm -hmm. um, and that their strategy will be to pick off the, the high-quality players who are at clubs of lesser financial strength who get into financial difficulties because of this at a cheap price um, and, and kind of round out their squads, maybe even have a feeder club system in the way that Manchester City and, and Chelsea have developed down the year. So, so grab more of the talent at lower mm. cost um, when this opportunity presents itself. And that kind of is where they think the, the transfer market will end up going once a window is opened um, when FIFA uh, decide is the appropriate time in tandem with the completion of the leagues. Yeah, that, that sounds a very, very plausible um, way that, that, that football might end up behaving. Um, there's, there's no doubt that, that there's, there's, the valuations of players will, will, will disappear or go down. Um, you know, less income for clubs, of course. Um, I think also, I talk about the, you know, I talk about the sort of look of things. Uh, I think the idea that you could suddenly countenance paying. You know the price of a hospital wing for a footballer um, would just is 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 so sort of wrong at this particular time um, that, that I think there might be a bit of a, a backlash and distaste towards high fees, which which there is in some quarters anyway. Um, yeah. But there's no doubt that that key point about predators looking to turn this to their advantage. We're seeing that in other fields of business. Uh, football won't be any different, and we know that. Um, well, we've seen already that that, 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 that some clubs and owners are, um, you know, looking at this crisis through the prism of, you know, how can we take advantage of this, and um, and that'll that'll, that'll undoubtedly um, be the case for some of them. They will be making those calculations right now, and yeah, it, it's it, you know, there will be football afterwards. There will be a massive appetite for it. There will be, yeah. But like in every other sphere, I think the it's one of those that the, the fittest survive, isn't it? The 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 the, the, the biggest will um, probably get bigger afterwards, and I think you're you're reading it right in terms of the the, the way it, it might unfold. Yeah, I, I think like talking about the financial pressures. I mean, we started here in the championship, but I, I think it was very interesting this week. You have the the chief executive of the Bundesliga. Which we generally mm. consider to be one of the, you know, the best organised and most financially sound leagues in Europe in the world. Um, Christian Seifert basically warning that um, 
that if they don't get the measures right, and he he was proposing that they will have to play what what they call ghost games and Geisterspiel, mm. uh, I think is the phrase in German. If they don't play them, if people aren't happy with them, there will no longer be twenty clubs when um, football resumes. And he said he said tens of thousands of jobs are at stake. We've reached mm. a point where Bundesliga has to admit, yes, we are manufacturing a product and if we no longer manufacture it, then we cease to exist. It's not only about the stars, more is at stake than just a few matches. Now, also um, got some information from a, um, a senior figure in the Dutch game um, and you know, an assessment of how, how resilient their clubs are to getting through a period without matches. And his assessment was he thinks only three of the clubs are properly safe. He thinks only Ajax, PSV Eindhoven and Feyenoord have the strength in terms of commercial contracts and money banked from previous transfers and or ability to sell talents to, to get through this. Um, and the rest are so dependent on match day revenues, so kind of traditional um, sources of income, that all of them are under threat from a sustained period of suspension. Um, so it, it, it makes you... I think we've been looking at this more as a problem, when do we restart? Mm-hmm. How do we get the leagues finished on an integrity basis. The, the, the yeah. sense I have, and, and I wonder if you're getting the same sense, is this is more, this is becoming an existential threat to yeah. a large number of European clubs. I, 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 I think it is. I think it's, um, and it's, it's, it's a wider existential threat, of course, to football and, and how much do we need it and where, where, where is it going to be placed after all of this? Um, but yeah, I mean, as as the reality starts to bite of um, not just a month, uh, maybe not just two months, but three or four months of um, trying to, to to carry on without sources of income, and and you know the the clubs who are affected by or who are reliant most on on gate revenue will be the most affected in the short term. But actually, there's a kind of I think there's a there's a sort of thing to be done about the whole the whole football model um, when it's so reliant on producing more and more games for live TV, and then um, suddenly there's a um, that ability to produce those games is taken away, and you're looking at like a Premier League level. Maybe uh, if if the season can't be finished, then um, the broadcaster's asking for. You know, let's say a quarter of the the fee back, um, which would be seven hundred fifty million. You calculate that in, and it's it adds up to about fifty million per club if you take gate receipts into it as well. So, the whole model, um, the whole model is 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 under threat, and um, I think there's a, there's an opportunity as well. I think it's all it's all always important to sort of think of opportunities, and and um, I think what we have seen from some clubs is the the community activities that they've they've tried to ramp up, um, you know, Watford and, and trying to do something where um, they identify vulnerable supporters and and um, you know players or staff are, are, are phoning them to try and keep their connection with 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 the football club going. Now, you know, this could be 
um, maybe less of an existential threat than an existential kind of remodeling for, for some clubs. On the one hand, um, you know, they're threatened, their existence is threatened financially, but on the other hand, this does give a chance to, to see the importance of, of, of football clubs to the core people, which of course is, is fans, to, to communities. And um, my hope, I'm getting all utopian now, but that it wouldn't be just the strongest that survive, but it would be um, the best sort of focus that survive, the ones that mean the most to their communities. You know, Everton's community programme has long been outstanding and they're trying to ramp up efforts at this particular time. I, I do think how clubs behave at this particular point will be remembered and it will be very important for them going forward. And you know, to use that horrible phrase, but, but as a, I guess it might be part of their brand capital going forward and uh, you know so I, I, I think um, well, I, I think all bets are off and, and, and this is where we find out who's the best run but also which clubs um, are focused the best behave the best the problem in front the immediate problem in front of the clubs is and the and the associations is when do we restart mm-hmm. you know they've, they've, they've made this it's not quite a cast iron commitment but it's um it's close to it in the statement. They say they're committed, this is English football, committed to finding ways of resuming the 2019-20 football season during all domestic and European club league and cup matches are played. Now, that can mean, as things stands, clubs, Manchester City, for example, have up to 19 matches still Mm. to play. Chelsea, Manchester United have up to 18 matches still to play. Um, we are seeing from, I think, from the, the, the infamous scientific models that the UK government had used to um, produce an initial policy of, of allowing the majority of the nation to be infected and then uh, having to backtrack and move to a suppression policy. Those models seem to indicate six months of um, suppression um, uh, or mitigation strategies being implemented, which would suggest it's not going to be a very good idea to play football matches no. for six months, which takes us to September at the earliest. Where, where do you? What's your your feel for when football will restart, and how do you complete the previous the, or the current mm-hmm. season? And get and and then use the remainder of time that's available. Best case scenario, say we're say say we restart September October, um, the, re- the remaining five months before Euro uh, twenty twenty one, to to have a the next season played. Well, I think what this week's shown us is that I, I, I guess the the health aspect is in control here. So you had on the you had on one day the Premier League announcing. Um, you know, this sort of extension till the, the, the 30th of April. Um, but then um, a few hours later, Boris Johnson here in the UK um, announcing a minimum of 12 weeks before getting the crisis under control, which immediately, for me, wiped out that April the 30th date. Now, this yeah. is Johnson who's attempting to, to put a bit of positive bluster on the situation. Um, and the, the best estimate you can offer people at the moment is 12 weeks to get the to start beating coronavirus, is what he said. Not to not to be kind of clear of it, just to start beating it. That's mid June. So I can't envisage 
football being played in May. Um, I think that uh, going by even that positive estimate of Johnson's, you're talking about May being the height of the epidemic um, and football trying to restart, even if it is, even if they did try and restart behind closed doors, restarting against the backdrop where you know the emergency services are absolutely stretched. If you play a closed doors game, you still need some sort of emergency services, medics and attendants. But could they be spared for a football match? Um, you know, there are the players on the pitch that are also staff at stadiums, um, and there are all the, the the kind of staff associated with teams. So you, you're still asking a, a large number of people, to relatively large number of people, um, you know, to to get together for an event, and that's one football match. You're talking about trying to do that. Um, you know, r- repeatedly over a short period of time, and then asking all those people to go home to their their families and 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 so on. I mean, it, you don't have to think it through too far to see that um, even closed doors football at the height of an epidemic feels pretty impossible. So I don't think may. Um, I think maybe maybe it's feasible to to, to see it starting again in June. And I mean, the big caveat would be, I'm, you know, I'm no, no medic, so this is all just going on the information we've been given and um, I'm not the best place to sort of make those medical things, but um, maybe June. But even, even in June, this idea that football can just suddenly pop back up and, oh, we can play 10 games in, a, in, in, in five weeks to, to finish the season, that itself has, has grave difficulties. Um, Maybe maybe the best way to think of this, and this was said to me by by a pro, is the calendar year. You know, if the season can be finished by the end of this calendar year, that might be the most realistic way of looking at things. Now, I do think that we need to try and finish the season from a sporting integrity point of view, and then take the hit on next season or use it as an opportunity to realign. But I mentioned all the kind of legal difficulties, not least with player registrations and contracts. So there's also grave difficulties in 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 doing that. Um it's uh it, it's just these are it's it's just so hard to call where we're going. But I think the one thing I do feel fairly certain about is um that that June deadline is 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 wildly optimistic. Yeah I think there's two things here. I think what we, we know is that when football is able to be played again, there will be a massive pressure on on the clubs to mm. play as many games as possible to get mm. as much revenue back as possible. So take that end of calendar year scenario, which I think is it, it, it's an optimistic one, but it's a, it's a mm. sensible one. If we can get everything done by the end of the calendar year, that gives us gives football five months to have a... 2021 season yeah um where they can for example have a premier league where teams only play each other once or have a champions a champions league if it's possible to organize european football and this is a separate issue here um where it's a straight knockout champions league to get games in and to get a competition and to get revenue in but there is going to be that pressure on the clubs to play and it's going to come from the clubs themselves yeah. And the clo- the closed doors scenario, I think we, we, we just have to look here at what happened in Italy and, and the first you know major league to suspend. 
they were trying to play behind closed doors. The players said, we don't want to do this. You're, you're, you're forcing us to travel during an epidemic into yeah. danger areas. Yeah. Um, they didn't quite go on strike, but there was an implicit threat they would go on strike. Uh, there was a statement from the, the head of the Italian uh, Footballers Association saying that, that the league needed to be suspended, and the next day the league was suspended. Now, I think if if the Premier League, if the Championship, try and play behind closed doors when it's clearly a danger to health to do so, I think mm. it's going to be very difficult for them to persuade the majority of players to do so. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and even... Even if return is something that um, you know the majority of the population are starting to to either become immune or move infection clear, there would still be footballers within squads um, falling ill with it. So yes. um, it would take one or two from a squad to get a game called off, or it would take you know a, a, a member of the coaching staff to have it, and then everyone to have to self isolate or, or 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 distance. So so there's there's. There's so many things, and then there's a, there is a sporting integrity viewpoint as well. I think with with playing three quarters of a season behind uh, in in front of crowds, and then one quarter um, behind closed doors. Because I mean, for example, I was just looking at Sheffield United and Wolves. Right, they've got golden chances, probably best chance they'll ever have to to try and get into the Champions League. Both those clubs, certainly Sheffield United. Now, anyone that's been to Bramall Lane or Molyneux will know the power and the, the, the passion and the pull that those stadiums have and how they influence, um, how they, they help their team achieve home results. And, you know, Sheffield United have got a huge fixture against Chelsea, home fixture that's been called off. If they then have to play that behind closed doors, um, it, it, it significantly lessens their opportunity to win that game and and um, get the points that they might have otherwise had you. But Watford, Vicarage Road, hugely passionate. That, you know, I was at the game where they, they, they beat Liverpool 3-0, um, where the stadium played its big part in, in that result. They're battling relegation. They're, they're playing, you know, Southampton and Newcastle, Norwich at home. Um, to play those games behind closed doors, when rivals have been able to play similar fixtures in, uh, before full houses and get the benefit of their fans, I think there's, an, a, there's a big integrity aspect there as well. Um, so I, I, I just think that the, 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 when it resumes, it has to resume when it's all clear, it's safe, and also from an integrity point of view, just where there's a, there's a fairness about it and evenness about it. Um, and then, you know, then there's all the other aspects as well, isn't there, about trying to cram fixtures into a, a short period of time. Yeah, I think, I think I agree with you. And I think most of the people I'm speaking to in the game have the same opinion that from a public health mm -hmm. perspective and from an integrity perspective, it, has, it, it should only be resumed when it can be resumed as close to normal as possible, i.e. in stadiums yeah. with fans, um, with people not worried about contracting disease by playing games and, and attending matches. But I mean, you mentioned the other issues here, and, mm. and, and I, think, I think one of the key issues is if, you, if and when you restart, how do you handle player fitness? Because we are, you know, we're, we're talking about months without playing football. 
we're talking probably about months without being able to train as a team. Um, football, as we know, is is more focused on conditioning and pushing players to their, their physical limits than it's ever been. It's fundamental mm-hmm. to the way, for example, Liverpool play, the way that the European champions and the, the Premier League um, title holders elect play. Um, you are going to be asking these guys to come back possibly with a very limited pre-season, if any at all, um, and get their levels up to to something having had a longer break than they've ever experienced in their careers before. And you're asking them to do it in a situation where everything is on the line. So it's the end of the season, relegation, clubs are fighting for Champions League places, clubs are fighting for titles, clubs are fighting for promotion. That's the period when managers push the players harder than ever. It, it seems to me that is a recipe for um, injury, and for you know another integrity hmm. to the season problem if it's not handled properly. Oh, com- completely. I mean, and it's interesting. FIFA Pro are starting to raise this question of, 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 on behalf of the players. But yeah, for sure. If if you try and pack in um, the last nine games or ten games, uh, if Man City of the Premier League season into let's say five weeks, six weeks. I mean, we 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 know from. Um, from the Christmas period uh, and the spike in injuries that's caused, then we know it's going to happen to players. There's going to be, you know, a huge amount of, of, of problems, injuries. This at a time when a lot of players are nearing the end of their contracts, you know, when that June the 30th deadline's come up. So you're asking players to risk injury at a time when they're about to become out of contract. I think that's a that's hugely unfair on them, uh, uh, unfair on on the, the integrity of the competition. And, you know, we were talking about this, Duncan, weren't we? But if, if, if let's say, you know, a, a two-week calf strain in the middle of this kind of block where we're trying to finish the season, so the two-week calf strain becomes like the equivalent of a, of a four-month ACL in terms of games missed. And that's, that's not right for sport and integrity either, is it? The, 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 you know, the misfortune a club could, could suffer for, for that. So I, I, I don't like this idea that... Um, players are just a resource ready to just switch on you know like 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 battery operated machines switch them on and make them they can just run overtime for a while they can't run overtime as you correctly identify the the the, the pace uh, the the relentlessness of premier league football now means every game is played to the absolute maximum and then there's one there's a final point i suppose which is that when athletes stress their bodies when they play to the maximum their immune systems get stressed doing that um, and athletes get lots of colds and lots of little ailments because performance pushes your immune system to its limits. So with the health backdrop as well, um, it, 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 it's, it's just player welfare has to be taken into account here. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good and important point about the, the stress that it's, it's putting on players. And I think also the contractual point is, is, is going to be crucial here because we've, we've seen suggestions that um, you know, the Football League, Premier League will introduce, I think the Premier League has 69 players that are due to go out of contract at the end of June, but they'll introduce a rule allowing the clubs to extend the contracts on a week-by-week basis. Now, that, that's fine from the club's perspective, but if you're a player, do you want to have your contract extended on a week-to-week basis when you know you're going out of contract 
and you're going into the most depressed football market we've seen for years, possibly decades. So the, the, the possibility of finding another deal is, is, is going to be difficult for these individuals to start with. Mm. But you're also asking them, as you point out, to then play in the most dangerous conditions that they've they've ever experienced, where the, the risk of them getting a serious injury is magnified, which will obviously make it even harder for them to to find a, a new club to take them on at, at equivalent financial terms to their being paid at present. Absolutely. I mean, there's been a sort of glib suggestion that, um, uh, oh, well, they can just, um, you know, if the season finishes, let's say, at the end of July, then... It's just you just add tag a one month extension onto the contract. I mean, I was talking to an agent about this yesterday. What 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 player in the right mind would want to sign a one month contract um, and then pitch themselves into uncertainty? You know, risking injury and and as you say, going into a depressed market. And and we, you know, the best we could come up with was that you know there would have to be a mechanism that that any extension would be a minimum of a year. Um, mm-hmm. to, to guarantee for them. I mean, I mean, what what the, the agents you speak to don't what what are they saying about this? Because it, this seems like a real difficult one to get to get right. Yeah, I, I think that's the the problem, and I think there are legal issues here because mm-hmm. you cannot force players to sign contract extensions. You know, mm. this we football's had its its big. Um, legal freedom of contract issues in the past and the compromise has been the transfer system we have and the compromise uh, solution is when your contract ends you are free to join another club without compensation being paid if you're over a certain age now any uh, patchwork solution which proposes the automatic extension of player contracts uh, in the premier league and other divisions in order to facilitate the 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 end of uh, the season to avoid legal issues with broadcasters is going to have legal issues with individual players who do not want to have their contract extended. And those players will have the right of their countries and European uh, contract law on their side. If you don't want to sign a contract with your employer and you're mm-hmm. out of contract in football, you're, you will be within your rights to say, no, I, I, I choose to become a free agent um, and to to see who who wants to employ me going forward. Yeah, I mean that that would be the. I'd, I'd say that wouldn't be a, sen, a, set, a selfish thing to do. I'd say that'd just be a sensible thing to do that we'd all we'd all try and do for protection. I mean another another thing I've heard proposed would be that you could allow players to, um, you know, sign a contract with a new club on the basis that that contract, um, you know, that contract gives them a guarantee, but they. They, they still commit to finishing the 2019-20 season with their existing club. And, you know, it, it, that, that's a kind of nice solution for about three seconds until you start. <laughs> right, then what happens if they, uh, you know, play against the team that they're about to sign for and so on? I mean, I remember the great Charlie Nicholas scoring a penalty in a penalty shootout for Aberdeen against Celtic in the Scottish Cup final in 1990 that stopped Celtic getting into... Europe and, and, and put Aberdeen in instead and, and Charlie had actually already signed for Celtic so he demonstrated great integrity in, in, in burying that penalty but I'd suggest that maybe not all players would be able to uh, be quite so um, sort of 
uh, free um, in, in motives when naturally, if they were playing against a club that they'd already just you know signed for, it's, it's just just that would be too difficult to, to to make workable. Was um, was Charlie Nicholas still great when he played for Aberdeen? I seem to, <laughs> oh, to remember it being slightly different. <laughs> Charlie, oh goodness me, Duncan! I mean, we could do a whole podcast on on Charlie Nicholas and his. Um, uh, his, his his short but sweet Aberdeen career. Um, he still had it. He still had. It. He, he he maybe you know maybe the conditioning that we talked about earlier uh, wasn't <laughs> quite there for Charlie, but um, the the talent was, and uh, uh, and uh, he's he's he, he went down as a bit of a cult hero at Aberdeen, a cult legend. Uh, the talent in the bars of Aberdeen, or the talent on the football pitch. <laughs> It's quite quiet. I think he just got out of town as quickly as he could back down to Glasgow and uh, over weekend. Let's discuss another problem here, which I don't think has been particularly addressed as yet in this discussion of, of how we get football going again. And that's the Champions League and the Europa League. Champions League in particular. Champions League is the premier club football competition. It's the best football we get to watch. Um, obviously, it has to be restarted. Um, UEFA are committed to finishing the current season. I think the problem is how do you get the next, how do you get it restarted with all the leagues in coordination? And how do you get the, the, the season that comes after this one? to start with all the leagues in coordination. Because for a Champions League, you have to have a, a coherent entry list. And to have a coherent entry list, you have to have all of your participating leagues providing entrance. And if they all decide to conclude their current seasons, there's absolutely no guarantee that they will be concluding them at the same time. Because this is presumably going to be uh, done on a country-by-country basis when that country has its epidemic under control and it feels it's safe to play football. Um, and I think also you've got a secondary issue here, which is if you have a country, and, and unfortunately it seems that there is a, a reasonable chance that the UK might be one of these countries where the spread of the disease is much greater than in other European countries, um, are competitor leagues going to welcome those clubs to come and play matches against them? Are they going to want to go and play away games against them in the Champions League and the Europa League? It's almost a, a much harder problem than the, than concluding each of the domestic seasons is to get the the European schedule working coherently again. I I think. Yeah, it's, it's 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 an enormous problem, and and you know that's you you factor in the international dates as well. The other things that occupy midweek football, um, the need to you know maybe compact league programs to play in midweeks as well as 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 as, um, as, as weekends. Um, so there's, there's there's those sort of side issues, but I guess that yeah, you're right. The main the main issue is is. Um, Maintaining again, it comes back to integrity. We keep talking about that, but I think that I think one thing that this existential um, point in time does does reveal is how important integrity is for sporting competition and making sure that each country is applying the same or the, or the right entrance criteria is 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 really important. Um, 
this you know the, 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 you could see big clubs trying to take advantage of situations to try and get themselves in the Champions League and put pressure on to, to shortcut their ways in. Um, but then you know uh, that that final point you made, Duncan, that 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 need for a kind of continent-wide, um, almost a continent-wide freeness from the epidemic in order to make it level for everyone to make travel comfortable and safe. Um, to make places risk-free is another enormous problem, and you know you could. I think concluding one year's concluding this year's Champions League is one thing. You could. It's, it's different to a league season because it is essentially a cup competition where you you could maintain integrity by um, having a mini tournament of some sort. Um, you know, once you get the the um, knockout round, the current knockout round completed. You could envisage yeah. some kind of mini tournament to decide the Champions League and Europa League. So I think this year's competition is is kind of okay as long as the timing and the the safety is fine. But it's it's what happens with next year and there's huge broadcast um, revenue implications for that as well. Um, you know, if UEFA were willing to, UEFA already given up the European Championships for a year and the money that that was going to bring them in to give up a lot on the Champions League is, is a pretty big ask for them too yeah it's it, it almost it's almost like structurally the, the, the best thing to do would be to have a coordination on completing leagues once each league yeah. is completed and watch each yeah. country each, each league can only be completed when the country is safe to play football again once each league is completed then you complete the European um competition yeah. and then you have your entry for the next competition whenever you can start it but that would have to be such a top-down process from europe yeah. that i'm not sure that each individual league is going to be one willing to accept it and two financially able to accept it in that they as we've discussed earlier in the program as soon as they are able to play football they will want to push as many games in as possible rather than wait to um to, to re-coordinate the European calendar and re-coordinate Champions League Europa League. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, 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 I, I, and this is against the backdrop where um, the, the the big the big countries are becoming ever more influential and in driving the the process. Um, so I I think the key thing is would would be if you know Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and and England. Are coordinated and agreed, then I, I and, and UEFA are, are are with them. I suspect they can kind of force through whatever needs to be done. But just that that in itself, getting those big countries aligned um, from all sorts of points of view, um, and 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 the same on safeties is is a difficult thing. Um, and then, as I say, you know, once you get your entry sorted out. You're looking at next year's competition. There's a proposal that we could, for one season, go back to the old knockout-style European Cup. That'd be fantastic. I'd love that. I'd, I'd love that format of the competition, um, uh, of, of European competitions. But um, this is at a time when clubs want more European games, um, you know, pushing for European Super Leagues, um, to, to ask them to go from what, 15, 16 games to Champions League games to what would be eight or nine? Two guaranteed. 
Yeah, two gar- only two guaranteed. Two, two, <laughs> two guaranteed. The, you know, you put your nail nail on the head. Yeah, it, it, it's a guaranteed income, isn't it? That would be a big ask at this time. Um, so yeah, huge. Whether whether it would be in UEFA giving up international slots and trying to get those games played in a in a series of mini tournaments, I don't know. Um, I know you know. I was reading today. There's a working party has, has already been started up between the European leagues, the the ECA, um, and UEFA to try and sort out the calendar. And and I I suspect that that working party will be very very stressed over the next uh, few weeks trying to find solutions. Yeah, two observations. One, it gives uh, it gives UEFA and CAS um, plenty of time to decide whether Manchester City are going to play in the next Champions League or not, assuming they can have the uh, the, the trial by uh, by video as opposed to in in a courtroom in Switzerland. Um, and the other is, as you mentioned, European Super League. We have this pressure, particularly from Juventus, um, Real Madrid, interested as well in creating a European Super League, you have to say that this kind of disruption and this kind of problem that requires to be solved to to restart the European calendar plays into the hands of clubs who are suggesting fundamental changes to the makeup of European football. If you're going to start a European Super League, this is an opportunity and a timing um, to do so. Yeah, you know, it's... in a kind of realigned or reconfigured football world where you know you're kind of starting again to a certain extent um then the likelihood of a push for the european super league is 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 very high i think i think juventus and others might see this as as their moment um and there's all sorts of as you say the political and financial landscape might make it possible to do that um i would just i, I kind of query from a I think the one thing that might go against it would be a public taste point of view. Um, yes. I, I suspect, you know, first of all, being seen as opportunist is a big danger, although that, that probably hasn't stopped Juventus ever so far um, or other clubs <laughs> for it. Um, but I, I do suspect that, that when we come out of this, there'll be a huge public taste for, um, quote-unquote, the you know, traditional football, i.e., um, the, those really entrenched rivalries, the community rivalries, the Liverpool-Manchester, the Barcelona-Madrid, um, the the you know the the, the kind of uh, Milan-Turin rivalries, all those sorts of things. And I think that might be the greater taste. I mean, I, mean, I, I think I'm, I'm just kind of guessing, but I think the domestic leagues and, and the taste for that sort of football, you know, as we kind of look inward at this point. And we sort of think hard about our communities and, and and hopefully go value them a bit more at this time. When we come out of them, I think I think that's might be the where the real taste lies. Um, and um, you know, if you look at what happened after the war, there was this huge upsurge, and uh, the, the Second World War was huge upsurge in in British football football attendances. Um, you know, Hampden Park was getting one hundred and fifty thousand for for Scottish Cup finals three or four years almost. In a row, and and um, I think we could see that huge popularity of, of domestic football again and taste for it. So that part of the backdrop wouldn't work for the European league, but the 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 the, the kind of I'm sure um, 
there are other, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's a moment that some will try and take advantage of the political and financial landscape. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think there's going to be a, a, a desire to get back to normal mm. and getting back to normal is those matches, you know, those domestic rivalries that you, you talk about. There are things I think that will be missed hugely and there will, be, there will certainly be a resistance to opportunism. Um, if, it, if Juventus, etc., try and take advantage of the situation for their financial mm. um, benefit in too blatant a fashion. Let's move this on to from leagues in general to you know a player and uh, and an agent and and how their circumstances are changed by um, the suspension of football. Um, let's let's talk about you know the most prominent. Um, potential transfer, which we've been discussing for months and months and months on on this podcast, um, and Paul Pogba, Mino Raiola. If if you're Paul Pogba, Mino Raiola, now, are you concerned that your attempt to get out of Manchester United and your attempt to get to a club which, um, as Raiola has indicated, is more suitable to his his um, clients? abilities on the field and an ability to win major titles and also to probably get another pay rise and a, and, a, and a substantial commission out of it. Has your ability to do that been significantly damaged? I think so. This this year, I think you're looking at a strategy that's looks pretty threadbare now for, 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 for you know, move Pogba this summer is, is very intensely problematic. Um, you know the locations that he, he was looking to move him to, um, you know Juventus and 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 Madrid maybe um, quite difficult to imagine those being able to do huge transfers. Um, also, um, this mess over when the season finishes. Um, you know it, when is that window going to come in in the summer? Um, and then there's the fact that. You know, a lot of the strategy around Pogba seemed to be to, um, you know, he would showcase his talents in the European Championships this summer, and that would sort of reignite his value and, and get a move on the back of that. I mean, that, that's as, as I understand it, that was part of the kind of Mino strategy for him. And, and of course, there are no European Championships, um, and Pogba turns 28 in 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 May, so there's a little bit of a time time ticking as well for us to. To wait a little bit, um, and then you know, there's the final one, of course, which is: is it is it is it the the right look at the moment to be kind of um, hustling and trying to, to trying to create a market and make a move? I mean, that's never stopped right before, of course, how how things look. Um, but um, to to you know maintain that kind of um, public image thing for Pogba um, to not be seen to be agitating is 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 very very difficult. However, someone someone like Mino Raiola always looks at opportunities as well, and and I suppose one thing you might look at is that um, once we go into um, once we go beyond June the thirtieth, Pogba's then in the end of isn't in the last year of his of his contract, um, and um, that might that might become there might be a new strategy on the basis of that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it, I don't know. What do you what do you think, Duncan? I mean, do you, do you think this means that Pogba realistically has to go back to putting in the hard yards for Manchester United in order to 
to to almost start again to try and get his move or 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 even even um, counting and staying. What do you reckon? Well, the sense I'm getting in in general from talking to agents about the transfer market is that a feeling that the big deals will not be happening. That yeah. you will not get you will not get huge increases in transfer fees. You won't get. 100 million euro transfer fees. It, this is not the time. That end of the market is not going to be the productive end of the market. It's going to be, as I discussed earlier, the stronger clubs picking off the the talents from the clubs that are entering financial difficulties. So I, I, I think your analysis there is right. It, it, it points towards another year at Manchester United for Paul Pogba. And um, since we probably won't be playing much football in that, next year at Manchester United for Paul Pogba, something pretty similar to his last year at Manchester mm. United for Paul Pogba. Mm. As sort of a, a long stint as a substitute for Bruno Fernandes. <laughs> a long stint on the sidelines not playing football again. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's quite well practised in that if you, if you look at it from that perspective. Um, a year without a year mostly without football isn't something new for for uh, Manchester United's best paid player. He's done that already. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, Johnny, about um, what I thought was one of the most uh, forthright and interesting newspaper columns I've read from a footballer, um, mm. which you played a very big part in, which was Wayne Rooney's um, yeah. first article for the Sunday Times. I think one of a extensive series to come. Yes, yes. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. We've, 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 we've signed them up for um, for a, a, a good chunk of columns. So, yeah, hopefully the first of many. So can you tell the listeners how you go about um, securing a talent like Wayne Rooney to, to write an exclusive column for the newspaper? Because I'm, I'm assuming it can't just have been the Captain Haddock byline picture that uh, convinced <laughs> them to do it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, and look, look. In the old days, um, when footballers didn't earn very much, then actually newspapers uh, could could just make make those things happen financially um, and offer them a few quid, and and that would be enough to get them to do it. It's an entirely different landscape now. So, so actually, the, why do footballers do columns? It's for, it's for. Um, you know, wildly sort of different reasons in the past. And someone like Wayne is is sort of coming towards the end of his playing career and moving into coaching, and that's where his ambitions lie. But it, as we discussed when I interviewed him um, to kind of launch the column, then you know if he didn't he if if that doesn't um, work out for him, then punditry is something he might he might do and is quite enjoyed. Um, so you know, from his point of view, he he wanted to explore uh, what it'd be like to do a newspaper column and. Um, he feels he's got quite a lot to communicate. Um, how, how you go about it? I mean, I, I, I guess that intro was a long-winded way of saying the player has to want to do it. So it has to, in a way, come from them. And this one came about just through um, building up a relationship over over a number of of years. You know, I'm not saying I'm, I wouldn't say I'm Wayne Rooney's pal, or I'm, I'm, I'm you know massively close to him, but I'm a journalist that he's spoken to over the years and 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 um, has thought was okay. And um, he likes the paper. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I interviewed Wayne on 
10th anniversary of, of joining Manchester United. I went to America to interview him as well. And um, you build up relationship doing stuff like that. So when it when he um, decided he, he wanted to explore doing a column, um, you know, we, we, we started talking about it. And then beyond that, you're talking about quite a lot of negotiations to, to you know, image rights and all that kind of stuff. But essentially, um, it's a trust thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a relationships thing and I'm absolutely delighted that he, he wants to to try and do it with us because I think as you saw in that first column, um he's forthright and he's honest and he's he's got a lot to say um and he's got a lot of insight. Um and it's gonna be fun. So how long did that process take? I mean from from the, the, the idea of a column being raised to yeah. the, the column first appearing in the newspaper. Oh I I think we're probably talking about we're talking about it for maybe four months, but the, the complications would be actually more on on our newspaper end, which is that um, we we've changed editors, we've kind of semi merged with the Times, um, we've moved to a new sort of digital first kind of policy. So actually, there were, there were three or four big things happening at the paper that meant that sort of couldn't commit to anything until those were out of the way. Um, uh, but but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like signing a football. It took it did take about three or four months. As I say, the the blocks were more, or, or the intricacies were more on our side. Um, you know, one thing I've seen with Wayne so far is he's he's his own man, um, and um, he he he's a, he's pretty straightforward. And if he wants to do something, he does it. So from from his point, um, it, I think it was relatively simple. You know, I want to do this. Let's do it together fine and, and the wait was actually for us to sort of sort things out um newspaper wise that just get just to be in a position that we could launch something like that and and the actual process of producing mm. the column how does that work how, how do you sit down with wayne how, how are the ideas proposed etc what's the mechanics of, of producing such a yeah, well, it's an extremely readable and interesting column. I'd recommend all our listeners to to dig it out, and, and if they haven't read already, have a look at what Rooney had to say last weekend. It's, I mean, I, this is, I think, maybe the eighth player stroke manager that I've worked with um, uh, uh, in, in doing a column. So they're all they're all a little bit different. The process is always a little bit different. But with with um, with Wayne, I mean, it has, it's, it's been an absolute. It's been an absolute joy um, because we, we 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 met we did an interview um, to launch it and then and talked about the column then and then last week I went up to Derby's training ground and um, I spent um, about forty minutes with them. We produced a you know what I think would have been a really good column of, about the Merseyside derby about Liverpool Everton and Wayne deconstructing Liverpool's to play. He's got a really sharp tactical mind, which which I think we'll be able to bring out once football does restart. But but yes, yeah, so we we did all that. I mean, and that was really. It's a bit like in, in that situation. It's a bit like interviewing someone, but the discussion is much more led than them by them than than the traditional interview. So, if you think about an interview, you might wish to um, confront the, the the subject with things they don't want to talk about because you want to find out and, and you want to put on record those things. You know, a column's different because it's their, um, it's their authorship. So you're actually just facilitating them 
talk about what they do want to talk about. So it's an interview, but it's an interview where um, they're sort of leading the agenda in a way rather than the questioner. So your role is just to sort of give prompts, really. You know, this is what you want to talk about, right? Let's look at this, let's look at that, let's look at that. Of course, what then happened was um, you know, the, 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 the coronavirus um, crisis and Wayne himself um, actually came back to me that night via email and and said um look um maybe we should maybe we should do a different column on corona and it's like great it's your column and, and we we then did it on the phone uh, as he was driving into training we spoke for about an hour uh on friday morning and um and then your job as a ghostwriter really is and this is it's funny you know there was a bit of a, a backlash from some readers who might have a certain snobbery towards footballers going oh well it's not even really written it's you know it's ghost written i mean what i'd say is that politicians business leaders pretty much everyone that has a newspaper column it's ghost written and the re reason for that is not that these guys can't write of course they can write it's just that journalism's a it's it's a it's a practiced skill and one of the biggest skills is just knowing how to structure a piece so um, that's the biggest thing that you do as a ghostwriter, I think, is you take, you, you, you try and keep the, the words and you try and keep how they said things, albeit that you're converting speech into something that's written, so you do have to tidy things up a little bit here and there. But the biggest job is actually just to structure it, so it's to, it's to, it's to um, try and, you know, if, get something from a conversation that maybe the person returns to it later in the conversation, putting those things together and just getting things in the right order. So that, that was a ghostwriter's job. And then you, you know, send it, send it back to the subject, uh, let them make sure that, uh, they're, they're happy because it's, and they might want to add something and then on you go. But I have to say that, that what you're looking for as a ghostwriter is a, the subject to commit time to it and b the subject to actually, you know, commit their own, have their own original thoughts about something and not just be entirely led by you. And on both those scores, Wayne's been incredible so far, um, you know, uh, beyond certain other people I've worked with, definitely. Um, and uh, I hope he maintains the enthusiasm for it going forward because I think he's, he's got a lot to offer. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the headlines from, from that first column was... Uh, Wayne's insistence that footballers were being treated as guinea pigs mm -hmm. in terms of the idea of playing behind closed doors. And I think, um, yeah, no punches were pulled and some very no. important points were made. And I, I'm looking forward to uh, to the next column um, yeah. this weekend. Yes, yes. We're, we're, we're hoping to talk today and, and produce that. And, and as you say, no punches were pulled. Um, one thing I've seen from him already is that um, he he he's, he'd just rather say what he thinks and and you know let the world deal with that rather than um, you know there's never been any kind of oh if I said that how would it look or you know blah 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 that's not that's not Wayne Rooney at all he's got his thoughts about things I think last week he wanted to try and speak up for footballers um, and you know that at that point where this you know ludicrous situation where the government wouldn't commit to advising football to close down uh, even though it was it was giving other advice about you know mass gatherings and um safety um and um you know wayne was trying to express a feeling that yeah you know us footballers have just been left to 
to continue going. And, you know, he, he said, it's not us that I'm worried about for necessarily where we are healthy people. Yes, we stress our immune systems, but it's, you know, we, we can probably deal with that, but it's, it's the people around us, it's our families, and it's certainly spectators at games. And, you know, f- football seemed to be being asked to carry on, you know, keep cheerful and carry on at this time of crisis last week. And, and, and he wanted to address that. And, you know, as I say, we'd rather just say what he thinks about something than, than kind of, focus group it and, and, and make sure it comes out all, all nicey-nicey. <laughs> Unlike some other people in prominent positions in the country mm. at present. Um, mm. So that, that which takes us on to our uh, our final section of this podcast, which is going to be a hero and villain. Um, quick fire round. I'm going to give you the villain. Um, and it's someone we've already mentioned this podcast and someone who's been mentioned on various transfer windows previously. I think it um, has to be Boris Johnson, um, who, as you've just referred to there, leads a government that, um, as of last week, made a public statement saying that there was no rationale to close or cancel sporting events as things stand based on scientific advice. And here we are um, less than a fortnight later with... Um, social distancing policies and um, a, a gradual turn towards the um, the policies that were recommended by the World Health Organization to start with. So I think it, I think this week's villain, uh, there's no contest for, and it is uh, Boris Johnson. So, which gives you the opportunity to give us a hero, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just had a little wicked thought. So I'm, I'm, you, you, you might enjoy this one. Look, the real hero is at this time without getting all kind of trite, but the, the real heroes are, 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 are you know, our medical services, doctors and nurses, and also people in communities. You know, where I live in Leicester, there's, there's this, the community group started up to try and help people um, who might be housebound, don't have food, all that kind of stuff, and that's happening all over the world. So there's, there's so many actual proper heroes. But I'm just going to say this, just because this will never, ever be said on, on your uh, podcast ever in the context of heroes. I'm going to be the one to do it. What about Ed Woodward? I um, I was reading um, this morning that Manchester United have committed to to paying, um, you know, the three thousand staff, uh, whether the games remaining games take place or not. They're going to compensate them for loss of earnings. Um, it might cost the club a million pounds, but they're going to do it now. Um, I think all football clubs should be looking after their workers in that way. So, well done. Uh, to Manchester United for doing that, and um, and of course Ed's at the Ed's at the top of that. So perhaps you can um, can you give him a donkey or something? You know, do you think he would accept it in person <laughs> from you? <laughs> He's had plenty of donkeys already, but we can we can give him a hero of the week for for that uh, for that gesture, which a few other clubs have which a few of other course. clubs have followed. But yes, <laughs> good shout on that one. Thank you, Johnny, for, um, for no joining us on the podcast this week. Um, that is it for this week's Transfer Window, um, the Thinking Fans Football Podcast. As we may have mentioned last week, the Transfer Window has been shortlisted for Podcast of the Year in the Scottish Press Awards. And uh, so we've been thinking about how we can continue to bring you the most valuable content during a period where no football is going to be played. Um, we will continue producing the Transfer Window. But our thinking is that we shouldn't try to bring you three episodes a week just for the sake of filling time. Um, We want these podcasts to continue to be informative, interesting and entertaining. Um, We want you, our listeners, to continue to be part of our debate, 
So let us know what you'd like to hear on the transfer window during this closed season break and we will continue to bring as much of the good stuff to you as we can. You can contact us on Twitter at Transfer Podcast. I'm there at Duncan Castles and Jonathan is at J Northcroft. We're also on Instagram at Duncan.Castles and at Transfer Podcast. Facebook, same address. And we now have a new YouTube channel called The Transfer Window. If you like what you've heard, please listen to some more episodes of The Transfer Window. Our entire back catalogue is available right here. Uh, and then recommend us to your friends and review us on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again through the transfer window.